Say hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane, one of your hosts uh, with Regan DeLoggins, our other host, and uh, we're expect- we're really anticipating doing a really good show today. We've got uh, we've got a familiar guest joining us, and I'll introduce uh, her in just a moment. But uh, let me again start as I have to. I know you've heard the number a bunch of times on the previous program, um, but let me uh, let me again remind people that we are listener supported radio. We require your support for us to stay on the air. So whether you're listening in New York City or whether you're listening in Washington, D.C., uh, if you're listening in New York, I, on WBAI, uh, I encourage you to go to the pledge line, which is 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org and follow the prompts and make a donation. If you're listening on WPFW in Washington, D.C., then I'm asking you to go to 202 202- Five eight eight nine seven three nine, or go online to wpfwfm.org and follow the prompts for a donation. Look uh, again. I'd love you guys to uh, to become a buddy to the program. I'd love you to make a donation to the station in the name of this program. It's a way to tell all the powers that be that this is a program that you that you um, you listen to the station for. Um, we do try to offer a native perspective to issues that affect us all. We we address native issues and we bring in guests that uh, that can illuminate some of the conversations. A lot of stuff going on all the time. Um, obviously, lots of social justice issues playing out. We continue to to push back and fight like hell over. Uh, the use of deadly force by by police officers to people of color, native people, black people, you know, pe- pe- just people in color of color. Um, we we know that racism um, is alive and well in the United States. It has never gone away, but certainly after uh, the previous four years, it became fashionable to be outspoken about it. And um, and we, we got a great example of somebody being uh, an outspoken racist just this week in Rick Santorum's comments about uh, <laughs> about Native people. Um, and we're going to discuss that all. First off, let me uh, uh, check. Uh, Regan, do we got Regan on the line? Not yet. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll look for her. Um, uh, how about uh, do, we, do we have our guests on the line? Yes, we do. All right. Well, let me get right to it, and uh, you let me know, Reggie, if uh, um, when when Regan uh, peeks in. Yep, we'll do. <laughs> All right. So my guest is uh, is somewhat familiar. If you listen to this program for for a good long time, you um, you know who uh, who she is. Uh, my guest is Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Uh, she is a um, a renowned historian, uh, an author, uh, written many books. Um, uh, addressing native issues, whether it's the indigenous people's history of the United States or um, all Indians have died off and or 20 other myths about native people. Even uh, her uh, her book about um, about the Second Amendment uh, really has to track necessarily uh, about the, the the role that uh, slave patrols and uh, and and fighting native people um are such an important part of of why uh, an, a young United States wanted to put guns in the hands of their people so often. Um, we also have a uh, uh, Roxanne has a new book that's coming out this summer, uh, and I'll let her talk a little bit about that. But it uh, it's 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 called Not a Nation of Immigrants. So we'll uh, we'll let her, her talk about that. I also have to acknowledge. Um, what I thought was a, a really great, um, I, I guess it's a miniseries because it was only a four-part series on HBO. Um, 
exterminate all the brutes, which uh, with, with uh, Roxanne had uh, worked with Raul Peck, um, another renowned artist in his own right, uh, Haitian film uh, filmmaker. Um, so I want to talk about it all. And so let me introduce Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz to Resistance Radio. Hi, John. It's so glad to be back. I'm so glad to be back. I know you um, you wanted me on last fall when I was writing that book, and I said we have to wait. So here we are. Well, you know, of course, you 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 really um, honored me with your uh, with your presence and being a guest uh, several times, including right in studio. So we've we um, in New York, of course. Now everything is still operating under protocols, uh, COVID protocols. So we're um, I'm even remote. I'm I'm broadcasting from the Seneca Nation territory of Cattaraugus. Uh, Regan is uh, is in Brooklyn, but not in studio. And of course, we got Reggie uh, running our board right there in uh, in our studio. So. Um, again, I want to thank you for for you know carving out some time for me. I know we, we have talked an, a number of times, and and there's just so much stuff going on. This year has been a crazy year um, from a from a COVID standpoint, but it's also um, just another in a long line of crazy years as a result, uh, you know, as as it relates to uh, to social justice. Uh, Regan, uh, Regan, are, do we have you yet? I hope you do. Can y'all hear me okay? Yes, we can. Well, I want to re- introduce Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz to Regan DeLoggins, who uh, Regan is uh, is co-host. Uh, you, I think, last time you were on, we we had Shawnee uh, Rice was uh, was sitting in, and uh, and and Shawnee actually uh, hooked me up with Regan, and uh, we've been really been doing some great great radio. So let me introduce uh, Regan DeLoggins to uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Roxanne and I have actually met before, so it's uh, it's always nice. To, to share space again, though. Well, that's Hi. great. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys know each other. <laughs> Hi, Regan. It's, 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 I'm glad to hear But I'm glad that I'm glad you're here and looking forward to discussing uh, uh, your work as well as getting some of your opinions and thoughts about all the crazy things John and I talk about. <laughs> Well, Roxanne, why don't you start by talking about your your new book that's coming out this August? So we'll, we'll start there because I know, you know, with a lot of your work, there is bound to be a certain amount of overlap because the uh, the the way that Native people have been uh, portrayed in history, not just by morons like Rick Santorum, but but just in general, oftentimes. Uh, deserves repeating, and, and I know if you're if you're if you've got a book called "Not a Nation of Immigrants," there's obviously got to be some references to the to the false narrative about Native people uh, and and our role in this on this continent. Right, and, and the subtitle is um, "Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and uh, History of Erasure and um, Exclusion." So I. You know, I, my editor asked me to write this book based on a paragraph in an indigenous people's history of the United States, you probably remember it, where I mention a nation of immigrants and say how it, it erases settler colonialism. It's a, um, first of all, you know, the United States treats immigrants horribly worse than any place in the world and uh, 
totally excluded Chinese for almost a century. And uh, so it's untrue, but it's also a means uh, that was only, you know, only invented by John F. Kennedy um, when he was a senator. And um, so it's, it's the post-war liberalism that um, created the, this concept um, that, you know, would, um, that simply erases, uh, you know, five years before he wrote that book, uh, Nation of Immigrants, uh, the Termination Act did away with the entire status, you know, of Native people and went about, you know, dissolving several reservations before it was stopped by Red Power. It took uh, 20 years of Red Power um, to stop it, but it did a lot of damage. And it could happen again, you know, because Congress has complete uh, control over uh, over Native people in the United States and the land. Um, so it's a very precarious position to be in and to have a whole ideology that simply erases it. So the other thing is I get asked a lot by immigrant friends. I, I live in San Francisco and 40% of the population is Chinese and uh, about 20% is, is uh, from Mexico and, and Central America. And uh, these are not, uh, you know, these are people who are discriminated against a lot, uh, they've gone through a lot, they come, mostly come very, very poor uh, in the past, and, you know, especially in the past. Um, and they asked me, well, what, what does this mean then about us, you know, about them, about immigrants? And um, so I, you know, I... Um, I wanted to try to figure that out. I didn't have the answer. <laughs> no, I wanted to figure it out. So, actually, doing the book, I've had the I had the contract for three years, and I have been sort of preparing and you know um, researching, and um, uh, you know I had a basic idea going, but I didn't really know where I was going to take it. I had an outline, you know. I mean, I had done. Uh, an outline that turned out to be pretty good structure, you know, pretty much guided me, um, kept me in, you know, within bounds um, uh, of, of the topic. But um, I did learn from this research, and especially during the pandemic, um, when I had complete time, you know, I travel a lot speaking, and I... I accept almost every invitation simply because I want to spread this message, you know, about settler colonialism that many people are still here and um, make recommendations of what people can do to support, you know, like land back and sovereignty and so forth. And um, so I traveled a lot. And for once I had this uh, space of time, I didn't know it would last so long, but... <laughs> But it did, and I got busy, and it kept me sane, too, because I, you know, I am an asthmatic, and I, I'm very vulnerable to, uh, it would, you know, I would probably die for sure if I, I got coronavirus, that's uh, my respiratory system. So I had to stay indoors, you know, and not really socialize at all. People would come out in front of my 
place and sidewalk and top lawn. And while I was six feet away uh, and masked, but uh, very little socializing. And um, on the other hand, I thought, I can't even do this. The libraries aren't open. How can I go research? But it's a really beautiful thing that's happened between now and back when I was writing an indigenous people's history of the United States um, in 2012, it was published in 2014, when I, I did all my research in libraries. And I thought, I, I just won't be able to do it, uh, but I would try to get as much as I could, you know, until I did, could get to a library. And what I discovered is that everything I look for is digitalized and online. It's just remarkable. I had no idea <laughs> the richness, you know, and how whole libraries, you know, have been um, digitalized and documents, archives. And so it's mostly an interpretive book. I didn't have to, you know, go to the... Uh, National Library or, you know, the uh, archive uh, that much it was interpreted, but I certainly did need, um, I did buy it, have to buy a few books that weren't, uh, you know, information that wasn't on, on the line, so I did um, purchase a few books that I used. But um, what I came up with is, of course, I framed it within, um, I took off on a you know, something that really, really bothered me, and that's Alexander. I think I, you know, I had told you about this um, the night that your your friend, uh, I can't remember his name, when we met there in New York, and and he was going over to see Alexander Hamilton, uh, Hamilton, uh, oh, yeah, the revolution, yeah, yeah. That, that blockbuster. And I, yeah, my friend, my friend Ross, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yes, Ross, yeah. And I was raving against it, you know, saying it, um, it, it's a nation of immigrants uh, um, spectacle and uh, being portrayed, you know, Alexander Hamilton being portrayed as an immigrant. And I knew that was false. I didn't have to look anything up. The guy was, you know, a British settler in a British colony. And he came and went to Columbia mm -hmm. University in another colony, you know, from the Caribbean. It would be like a young man going from the South Carolina colony to New York, you know, it was, he's not an immigrant. <laughs> we were so offended by, you know, this idea and how people had no conception of what, you know, colonialism was. Even. Well, and then the and, uh, one of the crazy parts is uh, one of the crazy parts is that a lot of this these conversations when when I hear white people talk about the United States being a nation of Im immigrants, they're they're trying to massage the that narrative. What they're they're really talking about, just like Rick Santorum, about white people. You know, Europeans. You know, as, not only as a British colony, but whether it's Spain or, or any of the other countries that Portugal that were involved in this in this colonial. Um, imperialism uh they they're calling themselves immigrants as you know as, as some sort right. of way to be a little bit self-deprecating but they aren't talking about the people who were abused they're 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 lifting that that word up to mean something we know they're talking about being white people yeah and this is you know what kennedy uh said and what, what they always say and you hear it time again is that they're um 
uh, everyone uh, in the United States is either an immigrant now or a descendant of immigrants. And uh, he added, and most people add, well, except those Native Americans, but he actually added in the original book he wrote in 1958 that he he made an exception to that. He actually presented... A, um, a a truly a white supremacist, you know, a very popular white supremacist men right now in a number of organizations like Europlus, you know, one of those white nationalist organizations that many people in the Western Hemisphere uh, did, um, well, no, in North America, they stick to North America, uh, Specifically, I think I've never heard it about in the other part of uh, the hemisphere, that the Native people who exist now, who are descendants from, you know, who were there when the, the colonizers came, were actually immigrants themselves, that they had invaded and killed off the real Aboriginal people, and that those Aboriginal people may have been Irish. So this is, you know, um, some say Scots, you know, some say, but, you know, quite European. So uh, I know that when I I read A Nation of Immigrants uh, closely and got that, you know, because the language in it is a little bit gnarly, you know, kind of not always clear, but that was a shock. He finally, in the end, calls, calls Native Americans the first immigrants. The first immigrants. So you talk what? about erasing settler colonial. <laughs> he erases the native people like, completely. And yeah. so I I start with a chapter on Alexander Hamilton and uh and that's a, a way of telling uh the true story of the revolution. You know how it was really a war against the native people, um, and the British were siding with the native people until they didn't. Um, but it was uh, most of the fighting was actually in your territory, and mm-hmm. uh, um, you know it's it's just taken out of any any um, uh, any historians' accounts. You know of the. Of the Great Revolution, and or as um, Gerald Moore calls it, the Counter Revolution of 1776. Yeah, so I start with that, and then I go immediately to settler colonialism, and um, it's a long, long chapter. I, I go into more detail than I did in an Indigenous Peoples history um, into what is, and, and there's so much more literature now. Than I had access to, and when I was writing the other book, really, really good literature, a journal of settler colonialism, and very rich uh, field of study now. And I, so I, I put that together and really made a case um, for understanding that up until the Irish refugees came to and a half million of them desperately, you know, starving, uh, colonized people themselves until they they arrived in the mid-1840s that everyone else had been 
settler, not an immigrant. <laughs> right. Settlers. And then I pose the question, how do immigrants become settlers? That's the real theme of the book. How do immigrants become settlers? And how can they, how can we get them to um, not become settlers, to unite I think some of this happens in Canada, some immigrant organizations like um, No One Is e- and No One Is Illegal, uh, right. Parshawalia, over on the uh, West Coast is founded, but now they have chapters all over the country, and they uh, partner with whatever Native people who land there on. And it's, you know, I they invited me to speak at one of their conferences on their 10th anniversary a few years ago, and I, I was just blown away because the um, the matriarchs and the you know elders and you know the leaders of all the Squamish uh, and you know the, the fishing uh, native people were in front as these you know in front of the stage facing the audience, and of course they also spoke, and the, the, um, most of the immigrants who were there were from uh, non-European countries, um, from India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Africa, uh, Latin America, Mexico, Caribbean, very mixed group. There were a few um, European, but very progressive, you know, so I... There's nothing like that in the United States. I mean, absolutely nothing, not even an idea of doing something like that. So um, I think, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's partly because here we do have that, you know, rhetoric of uh, a nation of immigrants that people really uh, embrace and well, you, you ask a good question, though. Your, your question about how does an immigrant become a settler, it's funny because I've, I've never really thought about framing it that way. What I, what I oftentimes framed it as, especially when we're talking about the Irish or the Italians or, or, or any other right. you know, larger population of Europeans that came in, it, to me it was always like, how did they become white? Because they weren't always treated right. like the like like the um, the exactly. the settler colonialists, right? So so you yeah. it begs that question because they do transition and they see the benefit of once they can be accepted as a part of that white supremacy group that that oftentimes were every bit as oppressive to them. But once they gain that acceptance, so whether you are of Irish ancestry or Italian ancestry or Polish or uh, Eastern European, once you get accepted by the rest of that club, that's, you know, and, 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 and this includes Jewish people. I mean, uh, so all of a sudden you've got this whole other class that, that we now call white people. They didn't necessarily call them white people back then. But then there's, then there's the rest of us. And so this is where when, when I hear that use of that expression, a nation of immigrants, they they are, even as they're saying those words, they're separating this idea of of immigrants of white origin as opposed to immigrants from any place else. I think what's really yeah. interesting, um, particularly about this, is about this is when people adopt the nation of immigrants, MISO, I, I mean, you said it perfectly in... in in, uh, in your writing, Roxanne, where you, where you say that it is um, this convenient myth 
that's developed is part of this like benign, uh, you know, it maintains this benign history of the United States, which I find, which, by the way, when I first read that, I, it changed my life, and it, I have since then always tried to include that in, in something that I that I write. Uh, I always try to cite that because it's such an important moment for folks to understand that the history that we are taught and the history that we read is part, you know, is part and partial of this benign history where we are meant to see the, the U.S. and the, the construction of the United States as well as the construction of the American identity as a non-violent, a non-violent action when, in fact, what we learn is a fantastical origin story. You know, like, it's, we've learned something that is historically inaccurate, but maintains this mythos that, oh, you know, if immigration is positive and it is not, not violent or settlers, like, there's a very specific narrative that, that is that it's tied to when we talk about immigration and and I think it's also really important that when we talk about the nation of immigrants it's rarely discussed from a point of view where we're embracing brown and black immigrant narratives as well because as we know you know this country is an incredibly anti-immigrant country so there's you know the amount of the hate crimes that specifically brown and black immigrants in Central and South America experience within this country is extremely high like there's a lot of horrible rhetoric when it comes immigration so it's interesting to me that they build off of this narrative of the nation of immigrants as long as it's white immigration if it's black and brown immigration then we need to have policies that curb that in order for them not to come in and take our jobs you know that's just like garbage narrative that we're fed but i think it's really interesting that we're talking about immigrants but specifically the nation of immigrants is meant to embrace white immigrants Yeah, really, really good point. I the the way I deal with um, <clears throat> the whitening of um, immigrants, which I call you know uh, making them into getting getting the settler consciousness that they belong. There were some interesting processes for for the Irish who were despised. You know, either they did speak English, uh, which was an advantage to them over the later European, Italian, and Eastern Europeans, but they um, they were reviled as, you know, because they were extremely poor and ragged, you know, and the women, mostly the only work was either washing people's clothes or sex work, you know, being prostitutes. And the men doing, you know, uh, the railroad work, the dirtiest work, building uh, canals and stuff. And they were treated very, very badly. There's no doubt about it. And they've been treated very badly, you know, and with colonized people and other Britain. And, um, and, you know, it was a famine that was induced to get rid of access Irish people. <laughs> so, um, but so they came from this situation, but they also formed gangs, which is a tradition in the United States of the first generation of immigrants uh, generally, you know, have to uh, get involved in crime to make a living. And, uh, and it's so easy in a capitalist society, you know, to uh, have this whole underworld of, of criminal activity. And it makes them, you know, puts them in a precarious position. But in doing so, 
they um, uh, police forces started forming um, to control them. Basically, there were no police. There were no police. There were slave patrols, and there were, uh, you know, kind of. Um, there, there were no police uh, as we know it now. You know, police forces in cities. So they started forming in the 1860s and 1870s, especially after the Civil War. And they start, they were fighting against the Irish gangs. You may have seen that movie, The Gangs of New York. Um, mm-hmm. That was, you know, showing the beginning of policing of these, uh, of these people. So they began uh, um, recruiting uh, Irish you know, some Irish in Boston. And essentially, the Irish became settlers by becoming the police. And another job they were able to get in the in the shop was, you know, a flight patrol. They made up most of the uh, numbers of people in flight patrol and flight catchers, which are two different things, but uh, so it's no accident that we now have every police union in the country, you know, controlled by Irish. <laughs> and the Emerald Society is this very almost fascistic uh, police society that includes all kinds of police, border guards, uh, you know, um, sheriffs and so forth. <clears throat> so it's directly related. Uh, and it combines the other aspect of policing, especially after Civil War and after slavery, and it's the control of black people. And so this uh, is known, you know, the policing we're seeing now that's getting revealed. I, I was writing that history while it was all happening last year. It was very interesting to see it played out in the present of shooting black men in the back because they're, you know, they're not supposed to be. Uh, that's the slave patrol mentality to an escaped slave. So uh, shoot him or capture him or whatever. So that, that was how the Irish became Americanized and settled and very, very racist. And then you have the Italians and the um, Eastern Europeans, um, all of the Italians are Catholics, and most of the Europeans, the Slavs, are Catholics, and then there were Jews, but almost none were Protestant, you know, like Anglo Saxon Protestants, none. Um, and so they had a very rough time. That, uh, the um, uh, and what happened was the Catholic Church was about their only um, support that they had, you know, for charity and, and making them welcome. Um, they were Italian because of language, because they were very dark. They were from southern Italy and um, Sicilian, and very, very dark people. Northern Italians were like blondes, but these were you know, the Mediterranean Italians. And so they were called every word that's slur word that black people get called. 
and uh, they were like in um, meetings or whatever, union meetings, it was a time of union organizing. They never translated anything, had translators. They didn't want them in their unions. They didn't even want black people in their unions either. One problem with our uh, workers' movements in the United States, that racism, and why we don't really have authentic workers' movements like the rest of the world. But these, um, what was presented to these um, people was really an Irish invention, the Knights of Columbus, created a mythology of Columbus being the first immigrant, the first immigrant to the United States. I had never really read this um, material before. Uh, I knew that, you know, Columbus Day and there's this, this fixation that it's about Columbus, but I thought it was just maybe, you know, it's always attributed to the Italians, but it's actually the Irish who began it. And not as, as Italian as, as his Catholicism, that Catholic and was the first founder, the first immigrant. Therefore, the Irish in Catholic were uh, descendants, descendants of Columbus. Hmm. So they set up the Knights of Columbus, a very reactionary organization that still exists today that put up all those Columbus statues and Nicola Sarah and uh, colonizers and and also uh, <clears throat> uh, pressured the government to establish uh, Columbus Day as a holiday. Mm-hmm. But when the Italians came, they were kind of taken into this already existing Columbus fetishism. And here they were, not only Catholics, they're Italian, and Columbus was Italian. You know, so, so that was used, and then it was used also by Theodore Roosevelt, who hated the idea of anyone non-white even existing. Uh, he had to, by the time he was president, accept the fact that the industrial work base was mainly uh, immigrants. And so he started his Americanization campaign, but he partnered with the Knights of Columbus. And <clears throat> so this is, you know, uh, it's a very, very long chapter of this, this call, you know, Columbus in the White City, because, of course, in um, 1892, the 400-year anniversary of Columbus, um, they had the big spectacle in Chicago, and they called, you know, they had a uh, a display of what a, an, an American city should look like, and everything was gleaming white, so they called it the White City. And all around it was, you know, the, the um, displays of the evolution of mankind. And, of course, Native people were depicted as um, you know as as primitives as well as it brought some African natives 
uh, you know, grass, grass uh, clothes, or no, very little clothes. And then they went up. Roxanne, Roxanne let me let me back up a little bit because I think it's fascinating that you uh, the chronology, especially as it relates to the Knights of Columbus and some of this, because uh, you know most of us assume that the Knights of Columbus was an Italian American uh, organization, but yeah. but the fact that it was but it was really geared towards promoting um, you know you know again the, the white discoverer kind of thing, and if and and in a way Italian Americans used this already existing um, organization and the effort to promote Columbus as a national uh, uh, hero. So they use that. So when you ask that question, how does an immigrant become a settler? They actually use that. It sounds to me like they actually use some of that organizational um, effort to, to, uh, to lift themselves themselves out of the, um, you know, the, the immigrant population and and into the settler population. That's right. They made them settlers. Uh, the first, mm. you know, being the first, of course, you're the original settlers. It's like the, you know, Anglo and Anglo-Scots or uh, Irish, uh, the original settlers in the colonies. So they, they, uh, Columbus preceded that, you know, by several centuries. <laughs> Even more. Well, your 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 book your book comes out in August. Uh, is there are you accepting pre-orders and that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, or is Beacon Press doing it? Okay. Pre-order from Be- Beacon or Amazon. It's up on Amazon for pre-orders, and uh, and it's uh, uh, I'll probably of course I'll you know I'll get a book to you. So you can have it early. I mean, we'll get we'll get some um, early books out, and there will also be a um, a bound galley that goes out to press. So that will be in like June or July. We'll get okay. one of those. Awesome. Well, obviously, we're all pretty excited to see this. I mean, uh, you know, I've I've been able to you know catch every one of your your new books as they as they they've come out and. Uh, and they've and they've been enlightening every single one of them. You know, another project that that we all became recently aware of is this HBO miniseries, the Exterminate All the Brutes. Your work with uh, Raul Peck. I don't know, um, uh, uh, Regan. Have you gotten a chance to see any of that yet? No. Oh, we still have Regan there. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, and I know I know that you've been you, you've been terribly busy, but. Well, and but because I want I, Roxanne, I would I wanted to ask you what what is the would you say is the intent of the message? I mean, I I watched actually I watched it twice because I wanted to revisit a few things, and and I like I found it to be fascinating both artistically and historically. But if if you were to say what the function of that docu or that miniseries documentary was. What would you say is is the primary message that 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 yourself and and um, and Peck and others were trying to get across? Well, you know what, Ralph um, Peck contacted me. I didn't know him before. He was actually my favorite filmmaker, and I I couldn't believe it when I got a phone call from him. <laughs> I almost found out thinking it was a it was a prank because, um, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, and uh, he he says like 
I have your book and I love your book and I want I want uh, to include it and then he started explaining the you know, the idea of the series of HBO series to me and he'd already been working on it for about a year using the uh Sven um Eckhart's um uh, Exterminate All the Boots, which is a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michelle Ross, the uh, Haitian historian, Sci- uh, Silence of the Past, which is a fantastic book. And um, he wanted to add it. He said it blew him away because he's, you know, he's a very political guy and he's um, <clears throat> Haitian, you know, I call Haitian, and uh, uh, six foot six black man. He suffered plenty of, <laughs> you know, plenty of racism within in the United States, which he has off and on, you know, and his life. Uh, but he, um, he had never, ever, he knew, you know, he, he knew that Native people were still here. He knew they were very oppressed, and he had no idea. Uh, it never occurred to him, even though he seeped in anti-colonialism, he basically grew up in the Congo, where his parents worked for the, you know, just after independence. Uh, and then the leader was killed, the Mumba, the UN, a, a UN agency, started working there because the Belgians had left nothing. Every infrastructure they had, they tore down and left the place with nothing. Mm. And so they were... Uh, his father was an agronomist. Uh, so he actually grew up in the Congo right at the time of, of liberation uh, from Belgium. So he's, you know, seeped in anti-colonialism. And of course, Haiti was a colony. You know, U.S. Uh, occupied Haiti for 35 years in the 20th century. And, but it was the first national liberation movement that succeeded in 1806. Um, yeah, he, he, makes, so, he makes a strong point that when people talk about revolutions, they don't talk about what is truly a revolution, which is a distinct right, people revolting real. against coloniz- uh, you know, colonization. So he, he makes a good point of that exactly. in the film. Yeah, so he, um, he, he said, my book blew his mind because he had never, ever thought of the United States as a colonizer. Wow. He said it made perfect sense when he, when he got it. He said, why didn't I know that? You know, I mean, he's telling me this, and I said, that's very common, you know. Well, it's, it's actually part of the process. I mean, erasure yeah. is part of the process of colonization. Is exactly. It's not just about taking over. It's about erasing what was there before. And, you know, this is kind of... And, and, and I think his, his one of the things that I, w- I thought was most profound was his constantly getting back to this idea that wouldn't it be convenient if the only genocide that ever occurred was uh, was Nazi Germany? And, and then right. goes about proving how that is anything but the case. I also want to add yeah. and how I think it's really interesting that, um, that he didn't view the United States as a colony. And it really falls into to what we were discussing earlier, which is, which is this nation of immigrants, because it has permeated not just 
our interpretation as people who live in this occupied country, but also how the global public like, views the United States. You know, I, I like I talk often about how I am also an immigrant. I moved to this country um, when I was a child, um, even as an indigenous person. I moved to this country as a child, and my view of the U.S. was totally different because of the history that I was told. You know, and I didn't realize how colonial and imperial the U.S. was until I actually lived, you know, back you know back here on my land, back here within the community. So I think that this is all interconnected in terms of how the nation of immigrants mythos has really been uh, so successful that people from outside of this country, people in within this country, also view the U.S. as this benign symbol of freedom rather than a continuation of colonialism and imperialism. Yeah, the whole Statue of Liberty thing, you know. and um, Yeah, it's, uh, they believe all the myths. The, the, you know, the United States had the best propaganda machine in the world in the 20th century. Western movies, you know, uh, Hollywood. And that's what people know about the United States. Uh, a native scholar, I can't remember who this was, he was invited to um, New Zealand to give a lecture. He was at Dartmouth, and he was invited and he told us a story when he came back that um, that when he would say that he was, um, I think he was Modoc, that he was Native and tried to explain um, that uh, that people would start doing la 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 la, you know, hitting the mouth yeah. and and making that sound. And I, I mean, to greet him, <laughs> you know, they weren't trying to insult him. They just didn't know, so they said, oh, well, I didn't realize I had to start <laughs> at minus zero, you know, or minus, uh, you know, that it was worse than he expected. Of course, the um, aborigines he met uh, were very, were more informed, but at first he was being received by these uh, white scholars and, and and students, you know. So it's all over the world. It's... Um, Native people are portrayed in these in these uh, caricatures if they're portrayed at all, or just dead. You know, falling off a horse, dead while running away from a cowboy, and or an army. <laughs> you know, uh, and so they die over and over and over again, like that real um, uh, that wonderful documentary on real Indians. R E E L. Yeah, uh, yeah, real yeah. Indians. Yeah, uh, of course they said that. Yeah, that exactly. Um, and well, you know, being brilliant, well-read um, himself, and I think I think you shouldn't be surprised. You know, I think I think well, that's why I wrote the book. You know, that uh, that um, I knew I knew people weren't conscious of this, and then and unless you personally had interaction with them and explained, there was really no. You know, no resources available uh, in what you call, John, if you remember, um, one-stop shopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you call my book one-stop shopping. And literally, <laughs> that describes it. That's what I was trying to do. 
Well, and you you provided so much information that it's hard for most people to. I mean, you you make it real clear, in, even in the show, that there's a lot of information available, and because everything is so digitized. But if you don't know what to what to look for, I mean, it's or not even necessarily where to look for, but you don't even know what to look for. I mean, you mentioned yeah. this the propaganda machine that, that that Hollywood represented, but let's not leave out the fact that the public education in the United States has been geared you know so strictly towards uh, propagandizing the youth you know, when you think about what native kids or what kids are taught about native history uh, or i mean native people are taught as a period the period that ended with discovery that's the way it's been taught for for you know for you know 150 years i mean so the this yeah. idea that you have so many people uh who are just unaware i'm and, and it's amazing to me that that you know that Raul Peck had to had to take this journey through your book to to come to this realization, and and he put such a strong native presence in this in this documentary that you know again I'm I, I'm impressed I'm impressed with the work, but but it's I I think it's it's still if there I gotta tell you if if there's only one area of the documentary that I found a little problematic, and I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts on this are, when he was talking about the fact. Uh, um, and it might have even been in, in the fourth, uh, you know, uh, the fourth episode about the fact that we're still here and that we have. Uh, and he talked about our accomplishments. And what he did was he put up a, um, a bunch of images of people like uh, um, uh, Louise, um, um, the, the the author. Okay. And yeah, yeah right. And um, and he went through the line, a bunch of people who have had success in American politics and, and right up to, De to uh, Deb Haaland. And the problem that I have is that it characterized success within that r white mentality and that white construct. It, it, there was there was not a single person that he he when he was talking about us having some level of success or or accomplishments, were they were any of us who were still like on our lands doing our thing. You know, it's like we we were our accomplishments were being measured in accordance to to American culture and America and, and and white culture. Yeah, I think that was a problem. I, you know, I um I I became very conscious while I was writing indigenous people's history of um uh well reading Michael Cox's uh book um where he, he invented the term, the terminal narrative of Native mm -hmm. people, that in not talking about the present, well, this is what, you know, my critique of Howard Zinn, uh, who was a friend, you know, and he kept telling me I had to write that book because he didn't know how, but he, he's really good on the uh, genocide, he calls it genocide, and it's the first chapter in the book, and it's long, and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, fantastic, you know. I mean, he—it's it, really a monograph. It's useful, and then he gets to—he comes back. He—he he kind of skips over like there aren't any native people during the Civil War at all, even though you know that yeah. um, there were actually wars against native people during the Civil War, and and you know and, and massacres like sand creek sand creek um, sure under uh during yeah. abraham lincoln's presidency i might add <laughs> right and the navajo you know incarceration mm -hmm. and of course the dakota war and uh so there's none of that uh, but then he does pop up you know to 1890 and wounded knee 
And then there is nothing else in the book until um, the current affairs, you know, his last chapter of current affairs, where he mentions the American Indian Movement. So I would ask him what happened between 1890 and 1968, which he designates as uh, AIM, when it was founded, and Alcatraz, he talks about Alcatraz. What happened? Were they hibernating? <laughs> Were they off in space and came back? Was <laughs> it zombies that came up? You know, and he get really irritated with me. He says, I don't know how to tell that story. So that's the terminal narrative that is so strong. So I urged, uh, I convinced Raoul that it was important that, you know, that a point be made. And I think um, it's partly my fault that there was a period of time when I um, I didn't engage enough. I was traveling so much. Uh, I worked, you know, we worked. Uh, six months on the initial script that became the, you know, pretty much um, the bones of what it ended up being. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of input. I was also working on the other two books, you know, and right. the idea was to blend them all together and not to have one, then the other, and then the other, but, uh, you know, in, uh, really put them all within uh, the same context. So, but probably about half of the script is, you know, pretty much taken from indigenous people's history. Mm-hmm. So that's what he decided to do is to, um, you know, at the end to um, show that Native people are still here. Um, and I think it, yeah, it, it can have that effect. Um, of, um, you know, it would have been better to have a, um, uh, you know, have a, he, he did have some, some um, um, I think it was still photographs of standing off, you know, that he also. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But I, but I guess yeah. what he left out of that equation, I guess, even as he's listed that that series of photos, was um, was was uh, where do we end up on the assimilation curve? Uh, you know, because being he, still yeah. being here is is uh, is relative to whether whether you're still here as native people or still right. here as yeah. descendants of native people. I know we're almost we're just about out of time. So Roxanne, uh, let me let me say this. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I do want to encourage people look for Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book uh, coming out in August, uh, Not a Nation of Immigrants. Um, if you haven't gotten a chance to watch Exterminate All the Brutes, I encourage you to do so. Uh, as I've said many times on, on this and on my podcast, uh, I really want to engage some people in some conversations about this, and uh, none more valuable than engaging Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on Resistance Radio. I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Roxanne. It's always good to share space with you. Looking forward to continuing this conversation in the future especially as we can start doing things in person again. Uh, you know, I, I'm really anticipating oh. some of the things that we can do getting together. So thank you all so much. Again, thank you, Regan. Thank you, Reggie. And thank you very much, Roxanne. It is great to catch up with you. This is John Kane with Regan DeLoggins, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>